Welcome to another rip-roaring episode of Pod Like a Hole. Uh, in this season, we are on a space podity where we're putting on our astronaut suits, going out into the depths, into the abyss, and uh, finding what David Bowie was up to. We do it by rolling the old diamond dice in random order, and as we near the halfway point, that diamond dice is shaving off some numbers, I'll tell you that. But we, we've managed to hit upon Low, uh, which was album number 11. Low was released in 1977, and tonight we'll be talking about not only the year 1977, a little bit of David Bowie, a little bit of Tony Visconti, and probably some more Iggy Pop. Uh, as always, this is your humble narrator, your hero of the story, Mark... Um, I'm always joined by my fellow cohorts, co-hosts, co-creators, co-conspirators, and everything else that starts with the letter co. But this time, we found a stranger on the side of the road. We were always tired of crashing in that same car, so we picked up a passenger, like Iggy Pop would later sing about on Lust for Life. Maybe that was on Lust for Life, I think it was. So, it was our passenger tonight. Well, first, let me go ahead and introduce our uh, the co-conspirators. I've got, of course, man of the hour, Stephen Earl. What have you got for me? Uh, hello there. Uh, the amount of rambling you're doing, it makes me feel like Eric's doing the introduction tonight. <laughs> well done. You know, just uh, I'm always good for a long windup, as they would say in certain circles. And then, Eric, are you out there? Is anybody out there? I'm here. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I, I probably would have pushed that intro another 30 seconds, but hey, you know, good try. Hey, man. Nothing says intro like at least a minute and a half. And then, I believe we have someone coming, calling in from the void. Who's, who's that sitting in the passenger seat tonight? Who do we have? I think we've got a Mr. Joe. Joey V. Hi there. Returning (laughs) champion. Joey (laughs) Visconti. Son of Tony Visconti. This is the next best thing. Really? really We have Joe Vieira. Yeah. I got Joe here. We're in my garage. Um, so Joe and I are, 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 are doing this one face to face as we phone into you two. Um, we're, we're huddled around a little table. Um, we've got, you know, our knit caps on and our hoods on over our head, rubbing our hands together. As Joe said, we're, uh, it's kind of cold out here. We're, uh, we're making, we're rolling, uh, play-doh snakes and, um, 
you know, all we need is a little uh, you know, oil drum to, to light a fire. Can someone please uh, tell me when was the last time Joe was on the show? Oh, yeah. Joe, Joe do you remember the last yeah. time you were on the show? I want to say it was around uh, January, February of 2018, I believe. Uh, it's been about two years. Uh, we, I was on a on an episode of uh, 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 Pod Like a Hole talking about the uh, the in between years, the uh, the various adventures of Trent Reznor between uh, uh, between the albums, Downward Spiral and uh, the Fragile, and the various projects that he was involved with. So that was a really special episode for me to be a part of. I'm really happy to be here tonight because we're talking about my favorite David Bowie album. Uh, it's not a coincidence. I called dibs as soon as you guys said you were doing it. <laughs> Been waiting a while, <laughs> and we remembered. We didn't. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, go back that, on that, that offer. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. So uh, we're happy to have you back, Joe. Like I said, the returning champion returns. Uh, it's it's a it's an honor and a privilege and a pleasure that uh, you want to spend your your evening with us chatting with uh, about the old diamond the old diamond dave <laughs> that was his nickname right diamond dave or am i thinking of someone else it was one of the daves we're mixing our nicknames and metaphors now and that's okay i think i i, I think mr Bowie would appreciate it diamond dave i know was david i know lee it was david lee roth that was just a tee up right for you to go ahead and wow. give me a drop on panama Well, I don't have, you know, Mark, since we're, uh, this is inside baseball for everyone, and we don't need to talk about it for everybody to understand what we're saying, but I don't have the soundboard right now, so I can't drop that in, so I would, that, that, that guitar, that, that guitar riff would be happening right now, or at least that synth line, but anyways, Joe, honor and a privilege, thank you for freezing your ass off in Eric's garage, looking like a Tom Waits video, I'm sure over there, with your cutoff fingerless gloves and uh <laughs> maybe a pot of mulligan stew brewing yeah, on yeah. the uh... <laughs> the feeling is mutual thanks again for having me i'm excited i'm wearing an old can of chili as my hat right now <laughs> <laughs> with the brim is the uh the, the half yeah, open just, uh, yeah half open thing, yeah <laughs> oh man a 1920s cartoon you'll always be <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. I mean, I think what uh, we owe it to the listeners. So, Eric, what do you got on the, the, the Nine Inch Newswire? Nine Inch Newswire. Oh, big Nine Inch News this week. Big Nine Inch News this week. So, uh, you know, congratulations to Trent and his, his lovely wife, Mary Queen. They had their fifth child. Wow. Fifth child, and the day last week, and the day they did, he found out he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've talked about it during our Nine Inch Nails podcast. He used to be pretty skeptical, but when he got to induct the Cure last year, he kind of turned around and said, "Well, actually, there's some pretty, pretty decent folks getting represented here. You know, I guess it would be an honor. So that'll be fun." Him and Depeche Mode got in. Uh, T Rex got in. Um, 
no love for no love for the craft work uh, or the Iron Maiden. The, their day will hopefully come someday. But it'll be I think it'll be a fun live show. It's they're going to the HBO is going to play it live in May. Um, so that'll be fun to watch. Um, so there's that. And then in, in interviews about it, he did say that him and Atticus are planning the next phase of Nine Inch Nails, what that's going to look like, what that's going to sound like, probably new material in 2020 and some live shows as well. So that's some big news. Oh, yeah, the Bowie, the Bowie Bulletin is uh, there's two uh, albums being released. Um, let me pull them up here. So we got two, two EPs of unreleased material coming out soon. Um, we got a album called Changes Now Bowie, um, which is uh, unreleased radio sessions from 97 with Reeves Gabriel and Gail Lynn Dorsey. Um, all reworkings of old songs, um, like uh, uh, finally we'll get a release for their cover of White Light, White Heat. Um, there's a new reworking of Quicksand, um, the Superman, Andy Warhol, stuff like that. Songs we've heard, songs we talked about, but th- kind of with his 97 band in, a, in kind of an intimate radio recording. Fun era. Yeah, yeah. So that's coming out. And then uh, also same same month. Uh, these are both coming out on Record Store Day. Um, there's one called Is It Any Wonder? I don't have the track listing on this one. I guess they're revealing one song a week up until, up until then. Um, the first one they've released is an acoustic version of the – and Mark, don't go into to uh, uh, don't go into a relapse here, but it's Tin Machines. I can't read, but we all kind of agreed that was the best song they had, or one of the best. And it's an acoustic version of that, so that might be interesting. So those two are dropping on uh, April uh, in the uh, record store day. So Oof. Check it out. I'll probably wait for the streams on those, but they sound interesting enough. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we got all the uh, housekeeping out in order. Um, And uh, I think unless uh, anyone else wants to tell me about how uh, Bad Boys for Life was, um, I guess we can get into talking about 1977. So, Eric. The year was 1977. Tell me what was going on. You gave Steve his in, and he just wasn't there for it. (laughs) I know. My God, I'm I'm suffering technical difficulties over here. But I can tell you, Bad Boys for Life, why they called it Bad Boys for Life instead of just Bad Boys 3, because it confuses me. It's the third Bad Boys movie, but it was so good, I hope there's a fourth one. That is all. Leone make a triumphant return? No, she does not show up again, unfortunately. I uh, I don't even know what she's doing these days. What's the last thing I she was know. in? I mean, uh, it, that's, that's she a hard was, one. Was she in Bad Boys 2? I have no clue. Yeah, uh, Deep she, Impact. She was in Bad Boys 1. She was. She, was the, she, was the, uh, she wasn't the love interest in Bad Boys 1, but she was the, uh, the friend of, of Mike Lowry's uh, uh, girlfriend that was killed that ends up being a witness. I see. That's right. True. Bad Boys 1, True. classic soundtrack. It had all the hits. MFDM, Stabbing Westward, and the rest. That's um, right. That's right. I, I hope the next Bad Boy is the next Bad Boy is going to be called Bad Boys 4 Loco. Hi. I mean, uh, uh, we ready? We ready to talk about 
<laughs> they can't all be windows. 1977. Yes. Guys, what was the price of gasoline in 1977? Guys, a, a gallon of gas. Hold on to your socks. A gallon of gas was 65 cents. You could pay your rent for $240 a month. You could buy a ranch style house with three bedrooms, two baths, $33,000. Look at that. 65 cents a gallon. Wasn't that during a, a, a gas crisis too? You got it. People were losing their minds over that 65 cents, weren't they? You got it. That year, there was a gas crisis. A uh, sweet gentleman by the name of uh, Jimmy Carter was our president here farmer. in America, peanut farmer. He had to give up his peanut ranch to become president. So there wasn't any, uh, you know, conflict, conflict of, interest. of interest. Exactly. Imagine that. Um the first order of business was he pardoned all of the draft dodgers um, and uh, really recommended we look at how we use our fuel consumption. And I'm glad we took his words to heart. <laughs> uh, yes. Some big yes. news. Big news in 77. New York City blackout. 25 hours. No electricity in New York City. There were riots. There was looting. It sounds... Son of Sam? Fucking crazy. The right, summer of it. Sam. Got it. You got it. Um, ah, a little device called the Atari was released. Oh, the 2600 VCS. Sleek wood grain. It was the fastest little computer that could. Uh, what's the best game on was that? What's E.T. E. the game, I'm thinking? <laughs> That would come uh, Christmas of 82, but that was for the same system, credited with killing the system. But really, it was just emblematic of you know, there being way too much trash, people being kind of tired of the old box ready for something new. But uh, I don't know. I'd say the best game, and uh, any of our older readers or, or listeners are welcome to disagree with me because I'm not an expert on the Atari. But for me, my favorite game on the system will always be Yars Revenge. Crickets. Never no heard, one's of heard of it. <laughs> ah, yes. We're. Uh, it'd be great if it was a if it was a Star Trek crossover. That wasn't around yet either in '77. Mm -hmm. No, I was just gonna say Yars Revenge. I mean, that's the only Sasha that I know. You know, with that. But go ahead. Some kind continue. of a galactic space mosquito. Uh, you were a spaceship. There was a safe zone. It's hard to describe. The magic happens when you play it. Ah, oh, all right. Also in '77, Stephen, uh, the world lost uh, definitely one of your musical heroes. We lost uh, Mr. Elvis Presley at age 42. Wow, that is young. I didn't know he was that young. Wow, when he died. My God. Ah, uh, geez, we're almost we're almost that old. We're gonna we're gonna be Elvis's death Ooh. age soon. A few more years. Hey. A couple Apple guys in the room here. Apple II computer was released. 77. Big news, computer right? that changed everything. That's right. <laughs> no one's going to play number crunchers ever the same after that piece uh, of machinery. Right. And of course, the Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail? You bet. Looking at moves. Looking at movies, uh, the fourth episode of a little thing called Star Wars debuted this year. 
They didn't call it episode four at the time, though. They didn't? Nope, that was added later. I could see that being confusing to people that not, oh, not realizing it was what the series was intended to be. Yes, yeah. it was just called Star Wars. No, no new hope. I saw a, uh, I saw some guy on the internet did something that made me laugh today. He took the the Baba Duke, and he took the cover of that movie, and turned it into the the Baba Duke, the Baba Frick. <laughs> yes, the Babu Frick. Haunting. That was the little guy in the new one, right? He is the one who figured out that uh, R2-D2 kept an in, in iTunes backup of C-3PO. Yes. Automatically taking the stakes that we thought we had and then just saying, no, no stakes. That's fine. Everything's fine. Our C-3PO's back. But uh, Joe, give us your 30-second review and a return or a rise uh, of Skywalker. A lot of fun. Um, made absolutely no fucking sense, but so much fun. They, uh, you know, the, the magical, the magic, the greatest trick anyone ever pulled in star Wars of, uh, you know, bringing back the mighty emperor Palpatine via the, uh, the little credit crawl at the beginning was quite a, was quite a magical trick. (laughs) And yet, uh, the movie was stronger for it somehow. Uh, I had a really good time in the theater watching it in spite of the ridiculous uh, plot and uh, felt like it ended things off well. And I, I'm also optimistic about the future of the series because they're finally untethered from that, uh, from the Skywalker uh, storyline. So they can explore, you know, what's always, I think, kept people tied to that series, right? Was the expanded, you know, weird life that goes on everywhere. You know, it felt like you were just kind of sneaking in and seeing things all over the place. They didn't explain them. Well, now they get to explain them a little bit more. And I'm kind of excited about that, honestly. I concur with everything you just said. I am very excited about to see what's next. Uh, this High Republic uh, rumor has got me interested. Apparently, it's not the Old Republic. The High Republic is uh, a little newer than the Old Republic. But uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about it. I'm hopeful. The, is it the Middle Republic? Say that like you'd see a young Yoda, but we're not talking a baby Yoda, but we're talking like maybe a 300 year old Yoda, something like that. Yeah, when you when you get back to the old 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 Republic, where they're all, you know, wearing uh, it's talking about the foundations of the, the Jedi religions and. Uh, I, I can't I can't relate to it at all, even though we're talking about space stories that I shouldn't be able to relate to at all in the first place. But uh, yeah, I don't like going back that far. Yeah. I tried with the comics, but uh, yeah, maybe this High Republic will be a little bit more uh, <laughs> Jedi modern. Exactly. Uh, It'll be, bef- you know, the Obi like o- Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan's grandparents. That's about as right. far exactly. back as I want to go. Um, I just want to learn more about the Trade Federation. So hopefully we'll get some answers on that. <laughs> yes. I, 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 how many racist, racist caricatures <laughs> can we, uh, we fit into another story uh, about trade wars? Uh, I echo everything that Joe said. I, I just got to say, I, yeah, they shoehorned in the Emperor returning, 
but man, we got some eye candy at that um, that uh, that Sith planet, and all the <laughs> the Emperor as a puppet with all this the Frankenstein puppet was just uh, it was just really metal and cool looking. I, I loved all those scenes. So yeah. Well, I do I do have to say that you know as far as uh, the ending of trilogies go, if you want a coherent story and some stakes, go see Bad Boys Three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Right now, we're just talking about movies now. Um, you got Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, Rocky. You got Rocky. Yeah. Fine film. The, the Rocky franchise is a. We're, we're fans of that on this show. I won't hear any, any dissension. I don't have any. My favorite here, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, oh yeah, that's a good one. The music and the music in that was almost as good as the music in Rocky. All right. Uh, we this also had a uh, uh, King Kong, uh, not a good King Kong film. A bad, King uh, Kong a bad film. King Kong film. Yes, the the Jeff Bridges one where they uh, they were standing on, they they had a guy in a monkey suit standing on top of uh, some little statues of the World Trade Center. And fade on away. We got a great ride out of it though, though didn't we? Yeah, yeah that, that that goddamn ride. That now 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 hold on a second. That goddamn ride. Studios. So Universal Studios. Still the highlight of Universal Studios. Pro- yeah. Does Universal Studios even exist still? It yeah. Does. That's where Harry Potter World is. Yeah. Okay. They're putting a Nintendo World in it too. I'm sure I've told at least Mark this story. But I went to goddamn Universal Studios when I was a kid. We did the Disneyland, the Knott's Berry Farms, and the Universal Studios. And that tram ride to this, this four-year-old uh, was not a good time. I was scared shitless of the King Kong part. I was scared shitless of the part where you go over a collapsing bridge. I was scared shitless of the flood that comes at you. And then the part where you're driving up to Jaws, I was already like racked with nerves. And even before we saw Jaws, you see a giant rock just on the side of the road. And I screamed to the giant rock. Just every, <laughs> everyone looked was like, oh, my God, why is this child just screaming in the middle of nowhere? And I just I had enough terror at that time and I couldn't handle anymore. That was a, not a good time for someone that didn't understand it was all make-believe. And yeah, King Kong's giant hand was part of it. Yeah, uh, my older brother has a similar story to the Jaws ride scaring him. This would have been before I was born. This was probably in, I would, if I had to guess, like 79 or 80. He was like five or six. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, it's, a fun, it's a fun story that's told, you know every few years about him being terrified of that Jaws ride. So you're not alone on that one. So TV shows of the 70s, uh, I feel like we've mentioned the same shows every single album from the 70s because TV shows were on forever back then. Um, You got your uh, Little House on the Prairie, Happy Days, All in the Family, Three's Company, Barney Miller, Sanford and Son, Charlie's Angels. Your, those are your, your quintessential 70s shows. I guess Starsky and Hutch maybe wasn't out yet. 
I'm pretty sure that uh, Brady Bunches was still going strong in 77, if I had to guess. I don't know when Cousin Oliver came, but... <clears throat> Did you ever see that weird X-Files episode? It was not the new episode. It was back in the the last season from the 90s or early aughts. Definitely didn't see it then. They uh, they go... There's a whole episode in the Brady Bunch house where, oh. like, yeah, two, like... Gonna watch it now. Yeah, like, two guys, <laughs> and one of them has powers, and they get trapped in the house, and the agents have to go in, and, yeah, it's... It's an insane episode, and it's the only episode where they're able to prove to the world that that supernatural exists. That like they like there's this whole scene where Skinner's like taking the kid on a tour around the country, and like they're able. It's a crazy episode. Anyways, it's one of the few good ones from the last two seasons. Recommend. Well, you know, if we're gonna keep talking about the same shows, we should at least get a little bit more in depth. So in 1977, there's an episode of Sanford and Son called The Will. The description goes. Fred suffers amnesia after being bludgeoned with Esther's silver-plated Bible. Having looked death in the face, Fred wants to get his affairs in order, and so he prepares his last will and testament and summons his friends for its reading. All right, that sounds like a fantastic episode. <laughs> that actually sounds really good. <laughs> All right. Oh. When, uh, uh, but when again, I just like, I like any formal occasion, but where, you know, Red Fox is officiating it. That's, that's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about music. Uh, so one thing of note is I was wrong when I said 69, I was eight years off. <laughs> I don't know why I said 69, but, uh, that's completely wrong. Last episode, but the clash is self-titled al- album dropped this year. Hold on, <laughs> hold on a second. I was, hold on, hold on. There's, there's, there's I, flubs and then there's flubs and, uh, you know, you, 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 you fought with your wife over naming your child, uh, you know, Strummer Anderson for months, and it just didn't work out for you. And you didn't know when their first album came out? Uh, I believe I, I, when I was editing that episode, just the, the following day, I was like, what the fuck am I talking about? Like, I, I, I must have been a few, uh, a few beers in. Um, no, of course, the Clash self title came out. It's great, great album that uh, just, just a, a perfect example of uh, this this kind of new f- form of punk that promised so much. Even that that album promised so much more. Yeah, way ahead of its time. Yeah, it still is, honestly. Yeah, it's good well, stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's really uh, really ahead of its time, considering that uh, it originally came out in 1969, apparently. <laughs> uh, so stupid, stupid. It could it could time travel ahead eight years and still be ahead of its time. So this website has Barbara Streisand on twice. So fantastic. <laughs> the big year for for Babs, um, Hot Chocolate and Wings, both had had uh, had big years. And the Eagles dropped Hotel California. Silly. Regarding the Eagles, if any other band wrote Hotel California, I think we would like that song. What do you think? It's fine. Mm, no, I, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. That the, you know, so Eagles is one of those bands. You know, my my wife Anne is a big '70s music fan, so she can always fill in the blanks for me whenever I'm hating on something from the '70s. She can she can educate me on that kind of shit. But I didn't realize that there were multiple songwriters uh, for that band. And that explains why half the songs are great and half the songs are terrible. 
but I think that song falls on the terrible side, personally. I like their, uh, I don't even know, it's hard for me, I'm not a big enough of an Eagles fan to really, you know, defend any of my points here, so before, before I go off, but yeah, not, not, not a fan of, uh, not a fan of that, and I believe that was a Henley song, not a fan of Henley. All right, so Stephen Marker in the Hotel California's All Rights file, you two are against it. I think it's it's a classic song for a reason. It's catchy as all hell. I get it. And they're doing this Americana, you know, meet 70s rock thing. I mean, but I wouldn't fight to defend the position either. You know, I don't have a strong enough opinion. Just not a fan. I, I, I just find them them very boring and very soft. Oh, yeah. I, I, very soft. They don't they don't they don't. I, I can't imagine. I guess I'm. I, I I thinking about all these these alt country bands that are probably super. I was gonna say I can't imagine them inspiring anybody, but I that, they for sure did. So they, like all these Americana and alt country bands probably love the Eagles. Um, they just don't. They just don't do anything for me. Yeah, and I'm not saying that anybody should like the Eagles. Christ, I'm not an Eagles fan. I've said in the show before the best thing about them was a Netflix documentary. I just think Hotel California is as soft as the Eagles typically are. Is one of the few songs where it actually goes somewhere. It's got all that you know. That long outro with the dueling guitars and shit, that's all right. And I think if that was actually, say, a, um, I'm going to, a random art, let me pull a random art. Let, let's say, let's, let's say if, uh, let's say if, um, Bob Seeger made Hotel California, I bet you we'd like it more. Bob Seeger made several songs better oh, than yeah, that. Oh, yeah, he did. Though, that's what, so that's what I, I'm saying. I but I, I could see Bob Seeger making Hotel California. And then we'd be. He could get away with it because he had so many other better songs, though. I don't think it would be as fondly remembered as his other songs necessarily. That's not my point. My point is, if I, I, Bob yeah. Seger wrote Hotel California, Eric would like it. I rest my case. It would be more forgivable in light of his other songs. Uh, we've given Eagles four more minutes than they deserve. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> Uh, the reason, the whole reason we invited Joe here today is because something was happening in this, this, uh, mid to later era of the seventies, something that informed the music we're talking about tonight. And this is European, uh, electronic music. Um, and as, as he's shown anytime you hang out with him and especially on our five year gap episode with nine inch nails, the man knows his electronic music. Um, so, uh, what was going on in Europe, uh, with these, these synthesizers, So, I mean, you know, the whole the whole Krautrock thing was happening. And at the forefront of that, you know, a little band we may have heard of called Kraftwerk. Uh, they weren't even a new band at this point. By 77, they'd been around for about seven or eight years already. Um, and, uh, you know, they'd already kind of broken apart once. Uh, uh, Klaus Dinger left and uh, formed Noi. And, um, you know, Ralph and Florian uh, kept going. We're making their weird, trippy music, uh, you know, at one point, you know, with live drums, uh, but with really, really crazy synthesizers that would 
greatly inform uh, the album we're here to talk about today. Um, also in 77, their landmark album Trans Europe Express came out. Uh, in the titular track, they sing about David Bowie and Iggy Pop and, uh, you know, having met them. Uh, they became friends, uh, associates, uh, you know, during the, the beginning of these, uh, you know, Berlin era albums. And uh, they're, you know, you know, in an era before <clears throat> affordable synthesizers, they were modifying and designing their own instruments. Um, and, you know, with each with each album, they were just making humongous leaps, not just in style, uh, but in, you know, the technology that they used and the way that they recorded and wrote songs. Um, so I think that uh, their work uh, greatly informed uh, this. And, uh, you know, there's some uh, pretty fun uh, footage you can find now of, uh, you know, very early like recorded work of theirs from like 1970 even where you can really, you can even hear like, you know, what they would become. Uh, music that sounds extremely far ahead of its time. Uh, very uh, loud and, and, and bouncy synthesizer music. Um, very fast paced. Uh, the, the, the propelling, uh, you know, simplistic four by four drum signatures that we associate with techno music now. Uh, forming, you know, at the very beginning, you know, some of the songs would be droney, but they would they'd crystallize into these brief moments of like bouncy catchiness that you can't help but like, you know, nod your head to kind of almost not quite, but kind of getting to the point where people might conceivably someday dance to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, well, that no, shuts you up. No, that. No, that. Uh, I. I mean, I will say, I. Um, I, I. I think it was MTV Amp. That is where I first saw "We Are the Robots," the crazy Kraftwerk music video, um, and it always made me interested in them. And um, yeah, and then uh, I listened to them here and there, and then of course that amazing scene in Breakin'. Where he's sweep, he's broom dancing to Tour de France, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is freaking amazing. One of yeah. their great, one of their great singles, not from one an album originally, just uh, you know a, a very big single of theirs. But most, uh, you know, a lot of the music again from 1977's uh, Trans Europe Express formed like the basis of samples for like Africa Bombada, uh, early hip hop, and also very much of uh, Detroit. Uh, of like 1985 through like 1988 a lot of that was based on on samples and structures from this particular album of Kraftworks um, but you know its influence again wasn't just limited to techno that was something that would come way later uh, due to the release of and actually kind of financial failure of like the suite of instruments that Roland produced their, their low cost early drum machines and synthesizers were uh kind of considered commercial failures and they found their way into the hands of, you know, uh, y you know, younger and, uh, you know, kids that, that had interest in making music and didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, they, these instruments would find their way and these records would find their way into the hands of other people that would do big things with them. You know, 
outside of what their intended use was. Hey, Jill, wasn't that kind of uh, we... uh, two things? One, uh, wasn't Roland, didn't they end up making sound cards for computers around the late 80s and early 90s? They absolutely did, especially in Japan. Uh, the the computer um, uh, that Sharp made, the, the X68000, which had a Motorola CPU in it, which was also the basis of the Sega Genesis and the Neo Geo, they had an a they made a, a, an adapted sound card for that to improve the uh, synthesizer music quality from the basic PCM to a richer uh, FM synthesizer, which ironically was also like what the Sega Genesis had. Only theirs was not made by Roland; theirs was made by Yamaha. But uh, a similar type of of, of sound uh, involved with with that kind of um, you know, digital, digital music making in an era that wasn't quite there with MIDI music. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a big part of it uh, early on. But yeah, Roland, you know, they were a Japanese company, and you know, the guy who designed like the the TB three hundred three and the the eight hundred eight drum machine, he he played guitar, and he wanted a way to make like a, you know, a band sound just by himself in his apartment. You know, so he. <laughs> He basically made a robot drummer and a robot bassist, and those uh, instruments uh, became, you know, what we now know is like the basis of like house and acid music, and uh, not at all what he designed them for, but their utility was, uh, you know, far and wide, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty great. But before any of that happened, Kraftwerk was kind of making their own, their own stuff. You know, they were designing their own, their own drum machines, their own, their own. Uh, their own sound. That's uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that is incredible that you are able to explain all this eloquently. And also my only issue with all this is you've brought up craft work and uh, new and whoever else, but you still haven't talked about Autobahn. Oh yeah. 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 Autobahn. So that was, uh, you know, that was from, I want to say like 75, 74, late 74. Hold on on, guys. Hold on. I'm sorry. I was talking about the, I was talking about the band from the big Lebowski. Oh yeah. Autobahn is a craft work album. So that's what Udo Keeler's band was also named Autobahn. If you remember correctly. (laughs) Right. Right. And and what did, and and you guys remember how did mod describe them as title? Of a Kraftwerk album from, I believe, 84, 85. Oh, look, look at me. I tried to tell a joke, and uh, apparently that was some history that was actually real that I didn't even know about. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> a little, uh, yeah, a little on the nose. A little on the nose. Ah. So, Eric, uh, Joe just gave us the history of Krautrock, um, and we were still talking about 1977. Was there anything else about 1977 before we move on? Uh, just, um, I, I mean, some of Bowie's collaborators on what we're about to talk about, we're doing some stuff, but I think we'll, we can get to that when we talk about the making of this album. So, Do you hear that music? Always try to push through. Ah, it's oh, sports I let, I, time. 
I let Joe talk for 10 minutes about very important subjects, but I did not forget that we did not talk about the sports of 1977 when the Seattle Mariners and the Toronto Blue Jays made their debuts both in the American League. Mark, I had no idea the Mariners came from the 70s. I thought they were later. Did you know this? I did not. Uh, They were known as the Seattle Pilots. Does that sound right? That sounds about right to me. And yeah, they they uh, they were the last expansion teams until 1993. And the World Series was the New York Yan- the New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the Yankees beat the Dodgers. That was when Reggie Jackson, who used to be on the Oakland A's, became known as Mr. October, which is one of my favorite sports nicknames. By the way, everyone, if you've been paying attention to the news, the Houston Astros cheated to win their World Series. Mark, did you hear about this? I'm sure you did. Oh, my goodness, yes. If anything, the trash can has now made way to buzzer devices hidden underneath shirts. Uh, it is uh, like unpeeling an onion right now. It is fascinating. It, it, just, it all makes all the sense, you know. Uh, Jose Altuve, who I've always liked, but now a guy that's shorter than me that actually was like the batting champion three years in a row, it's very suspect all of a sudden. That's... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad, but I was amused that they had their uh, their fan fest was scheduled for this weekend, so I'm sure a, g- a good time was had by all. The NBA, the Portland Trailblazers, defeated the 76ers to win the finals. And over in American football, the Oakland Raiders beat the Minnesota Vikings to win the Super Bowl. And tomorrow, in 2020. The San Francisco 49ers will be playing against the Green Bay Packers in the, uh, what was that, the NFC Finals? And I'm looking forward to it. It's been a good year for the Niners. Anyhow, that was 1977's brief sports overview. Eric, back to you. Bowie was looking for oh, sorry Bowie was looking for an escape he uh, he was had been in LA and he had recorded station to station at one of his all-time albums but he has no memory of making it he was uh, was hitting the the drugs pretty hard hitting the slopes hitting the slopes that's right there's that's right there's snow there's snow on the mountain um, and uh, he he had he was quoted saying that um, you know what did I want to, why did I become a musician to clown around in LA um, I needed to look at myself more accurately um, I need to go somewhere where I found people I don't understand in a place I didn't want to be in um, force myself to buy my own groceries um, so he wanted that experience I like I like that I, I like that that force myself to buy my gross my groceries. There are a lot of times where David Bowie reminds you that he just likes being a human and interacting with other human beings. From 
that song we talked about, Conversation Piece, and, you know, the video for The Stars Are Out Tonight, where you just go into the grocery store. <laughs> and, yes. and a lot of the lyrical content on Heathen, he is a man of the people. Even even as one of the biggest stars of all time, he likes to uh, just be, you know, do human things. That's uh, it's, it's refreshing. That was one of the many reasons we adored the man. It's true. Um, and so, yeah, he and Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop was in a very similar place. Um, and they went, they went to Europe. They went to Berlin to, uh, well, they both, I mean, they, they both knew they had drug problems and they were hoping to shake that. Although Berlin is not necessarily the answer for that <laughs> as they would find out. Um, but it did, they weren't around the same circles. So, you know, they could take a week and work on music um, go to museums and then like binge for a weekend as opposed to binging every day. So I, you know, at least for Bowie, he was stepping in the right direction as far as cleaning up and uh, getting his head right. Um, so yeah, they went over, they went over there and uh, actually immediately Bowie's first work was not music. He was um, filming the man who fell to earth. And uh, do we, we did talk about this film um, in an earlier episode. I think when we talked about Station to Station, um, because it was kind of in the in the me, in the meantime. Joe, um, but you, uh, Joe, how do you you Joe got excited when I said that? What did you What do you think about that one, Joe? Big fan of that movie. Big fan of the book. Um, it's a it, it's a classic. It really kind of uh, captured early on the uh, the range that David Bowie had. You know, I mean, he's you know a lot of us. At least I can say in our age group, I was introduced to Bowie formally through the movie Labyrinth. I knew him for, yes. for various movie uh, and television appearances, you know, this this uh, this enigma. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, he's a famous singer. And I was like, I guess like I, I hadn't heard his music at the time when I was a kid, you know. Um, and so that movie really kind of, you know, he was the he was singularly the star of that movie. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a natural, you know, he, his look was so unique and exotic that it lent itself, you know, to visual formats, you know, not just like in fashion and costume, but, uh, through like performance on stage and performance on film. I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, there's a still from the production of that movie that serves as the cover of low. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a fan. It was a it was a pretty uh, interesting story. It pushed the boundaries of what we kind of expected out of sci-fi at the time, um, and uh, it was just an, it was an interesting story that kind of uh, coincidentally or not kind of fell in line with you know his own kind of um, fictional backstory of you know an alien, a man from another world, another place, who wants to you know fit in or whatever or belong in earth but you never really can right and so uh kind of mirrors you know like a, a ziggy stardust kind of persona so um i think it was a really good fit and i think it was really fortunate that that movie got to be made and it turned out really well and um yeah i think it fits in really well with uh you know him again uh pushing what he was always trying to do was, was do new things and challenge himself and make good art out of it. And I think he completely succeeded in taking part in something that was very new and out of his, you know, expertise and, and really running with it, with that movie. And so what Joe is saying 
in regards to David Bowie being multifaceted and uh, iconic visually is with David Bowie, it's the sound and vision. Except we're not there. Except we're not there yet. Yes. It's this album. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So they weren't actually in Berlin first. They were in France first. And that's where um, they went to the Chateau. We talked about it last time. Chateau de Roville. I don't know how to, I don't know how to pronounce French. My bad. Hey, Joe, Um, did you, Joe, did you take French? Nope. All right. I went to France once, but uh, I can't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't attempt to butcher. The how language. was uh, How'd France treat you? It was real good. That's good to hear. It was real. All good. right, keep going, Eric. Record, buddy. So Bowie was uh, obviously, you know, he he had a uh, a love hate relationship with Brian Ferry, but I think he respected Roxy Music. We've talked about Roxy Music quite a bit on this show, um, and especially Brian Eno's involvement. And um, he was a big fan of Brian Eno's uh, uh, album, Discreet Music, and some of his ambient works that came out uh, in the years just leading up to this. met him at this uh, hotel in France where they started laying down the the groundwork for the music. Um, But in the meantime, they were also laying down the music for The Idiot, which if you haven't listened to our B-side about Iggy Pop's The Idiot, pause here and uh, we'll wait. We'll wait. Just just flip on over, download it, and uh, and listen to an hour and 15 minutes of that. Um, And uh, Joe, you a fan of The Idiot? I am a fan of The Idiot. Uh, a, a great work. Uh, we were discussing it before we were talking on the show about how many of those songs go on to become hits for David Bowie. Uh, you know, it makes sense that they were, uh, you know, they were involved with the recording of each other's albums, featuring and backing vocals and such. Um, completely different songwriting structures, and yet this the albums both sound very much of a piece. Uh, you know, the, the the full the full backing uh, band music. It's like the first half of of Low and the entire album of The Idiot, you know, are uh, you could you could shuffle them together and believe that potentially it would be the same album almost. I think because they were in such a place of collaboration and songwriting and recording that, I mean, I think those songs uh, couldn't possibly have really been written or recorded in a vacuum. You know, I think uh, I think they really do belong together. Uh, you know, it's funny. I didn't even really notice it until, you know, you guys told me two weeks ago, like, Hey, we're thinking of recording this, uh, this podcast. You ready? And I was like, well, I knew I was ready for Bowie, but I didn't really realize how much, I mean, I'm very familiar with the idiot, but I didn't really realize, uh, that they were recorded, you know, basically, you know, side by side. 
and uh, and and now it's it's almost it's impossible to separate the two. Um, yeah, the way the the way both, the the place oh, I could draw a line between the two would be, yeah, they have a same uh, majority of the same players, majority of the same musicians, majority of the same approaches to some of the songwriting. Uh, I do think the idiot's a bit darker than the first half of Low. I think there's a even when Low is a you know not lyrically the most optimistic, it still has a a brighter sheen to it. I definitely could see how you could make them part of a double album. Absolutely. So in the hotel, you know, they, uh, the idiot was happening, but for low, um, they were recording and a lot of it, you know, Bowie was, would kind of come up with the music and then he had his band and it's his band from station to station. Um, and yeah. And who's that? Who, who's that lineup? Who has that? Oh, these, these are the, I mean, these are the guys. These are the guys that have been around for station to station. They're going to be here until scary monsters. They are just a crack team making some of the best albums of all time. And I think when people talk about this, the 1970s, like great rock bands, it's kind of a crime that we do talk about David Bowie quite a bit. Of course we do, but this particular band, they don't get brought up enough. <clears throat> and of course it's David Bowie on everything. Uh, harmonica, saxophones, synths, you know, yeah, Carlos Alomar and rhythm guitar. He's he's back again, Anthem Lee guitar. Dennis Davies doing the drumming and doing it well, as always. George Murray killing it on the bass. And you got this guy, Ricky Gardner, who uh, I don't think he was on Station to Station, but uh, he's definitely on this record doing a lot of the lead guitar. And uh, Roy Young on pianos. And of course, the new addition to this group is Brian Eno on the keyboards, the Moog, and a whole bunch of synthesizers that Joe's familiar with, and I am not. So there you go. So Eno's part on this was kind of cool. The first half of the album, Bowie and his band would just essentially, they recorded their songs. And then they kicked it over to Eno to add some flourishes to it and add stuff to it and some like sounds and and zaps and zoops and, and, uh, and all that. And then the second half... Um, they did that a little bit as well. And then some of them were free reign. Like Eno got to be there from the ground floor and compose it. Um, and you can really tell, and we'll talk about some of the unique recording techniques they use when we yeah, get the to band, it. the band, the band, the actual band, they tooled around for a couple of weeks and put these songs together. And then, uh, yeah, Brian, Eno came in after them and collaborated with Bowie. And then when they were done, Tony Visconti, who does not get enough credit for these records? He's still the producer. A lot of people assume it's Brian Eno for some reason. Tony Visconti took everything and he put it all together so it actually, much like the idiot, is a cohesive unit. Right, and then uh, at some point during the process, they did move to Berlin from from France and finished it up, and and they at a studio called like some studio Hansa by the Wall, um, and that's where they did I think a lot of the final uh, cuts, the final mixes, and uh, the vocal overdubs and stuff like that. Yeah, just and just um, being in Berlin, uh, being there near the wall and the history that's going on there, but also uh, I guess you know David Bowie said that he really felt. Like he was able to take it back to the streets. And he doesn't mean the streets like, you know, the back streets of Bruce Springsteen getting in fights and stuff. 
but hanging out with artists and in coffee shops and the getting back to that relating to common people kind of thing. So he was able to really do that there. So, uh, I guess the question, let's go to the Jay Sherman corner. Uh, what, what did people think about this album when it dropped? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, now, now it's heralded as one of the greatest records of all time. Um, but like many records where that happens, that's not always the case when they are released. Uh, it was, it was, it was very, people were, it, it, you know, it's there. It, it was kind of divided to where people ever thought it was the greatest thing of all time or much like the record producers, or I'm sorry, the record executives, they probably were like, what are we listened to? Um, and thought that it was fragmented. Uh, and Rolling Stone gave it a perfect score. And uh, Spin gave it four stars, even though did Spin even exists then. I don't know. The Village Voice gave it a B plus. Uh, <laughs> did Spin review the Rika Disc ninety one reissue? You gave it. Look at all the reviews I'm looking at right now. They all are retroactively saying it's one of the best albums of all time. When it came out, critics were were divided, and it, it people were there was a bit of a eyebrow raising and kind of being like, "What am I listening to?" I mean. Uh, the New York Times said there are hardly any vocals and what there are <laughs> when there are there mostly is mindless drodgel heard from afar and the instrumentals are strange and spacey. Uh, nevertheless, the whole thing is beautiful. So, I mean, right there in that in that sentence alone, that guy just said this album doesn't make any goddamn sense, but it sounds good, which uh, I think that's fair. Uh, I know that the that the producers at the label, the they like. They like he scooted it across the table and they scooted it right back yeah. to him. And they said, you know, that second half needs a little work. <laughs> it's all instrumental. And he basically said, like, you know, do you want a new Bowie album or not? Oh, yeah, it's very, and, uh, very ballsy. I mean, the rest of his albums were rock albums. Even when he got kind of crazy on parts of Station to Station, those are all still structured songs. I mean, this thing opens up with a uh, an instrumental track and ends with an instrumental side. That's uh, that's pretty wild. All right. Well, uh, do we want to get into the tracks? Well, first, let's go around the table and everybody's uh, history with this album. When's, when's the first time you heard Low? We'll start with our guest. Uh, first time I heard Low would have been around 1998. Um, and... I was already by that point. I was I was very aware of Bowie and was and was very much a fan. But you know he had such a huge uh, body of work, a very large back catalog, and I was still in high school at this point. So you know I kind of was just going towards you know finding what reviews I could, going for the bigger known you know albums. So this one was actually pretty low on the list. I found my way to it in a roundabout way through. Um, uh, you know, hearing it talked about is like one of like the seminal works of uh, Brian Eno, who I was at that point very, very into just kind of discovering his work largely through like, you know, his his ambient sound work was uh, was was like a really big discovery. I was pretty into electronic music. So that stuff was was pretty important to me and finding out that he was involved with that and made a largely ambient 
album with David Bowie, who I was familiar with, but was still learning. So this was, this was, you know, really kind of the David Bowie that kind of like blew the back of my head out because it was just like, it was the right album for me at the right time, you know, between two artists that I didn't even know knew each other. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute. They were like super into each other and collaborated and made this wild ass album and then subsequent albums, uh, you know, uh, so it, it, it really kind of was, it was an important album for me. And that's when I discovered it, you know, it exactly the right time when I was like about 17 or something. So that's when I first heard it. And, you know, obviously it's, it's my favorite David Bowie album, which is why I was bothering you guys to make sure I could blather about it with you, <laughs> uh, in the name of this show. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of my my general history, my introduction uh, to this particular album. Well, we are glad to have you here to blather about it. Mark, mm. Lo, you, what? So, uh, I was probably working at the record store when uh, I fell across this one in, in my catch em all days when I was going through and seeing how I could collect all of David Bowie's discography studio album work. And... Um, I think this one specifically, I think I, I got this one after I potentially got Heroes. I think I got Lodger last if we're talking Berlin Trilogy. Um, and my mind was open at that point. I was in truly an exploration mode in the sense of it, I didn't find it off-putting. Um, that was the, the beauty of working at that record store. It really broadened my horizons. Uh, and what my musical taste currently evolved into today. And uh, very similar to Joe, it was an interesting work because even though I had heard Heroes probably before this one, um, I quite enjoyed the instrumental part of the album. I don't know if I uh, like this one more than Heroes. I still don't know if uh, uh, which one of the Berlin trilogy I like best, and that's kind of what I'm looking forward to as we fall into those records at some point we can come back to it but uh yeah this this album was always kind of captivating in the sense of it was certainly bowie in a different lens and painting with a different brush it sounds extremely ahead of its time uh yeah that's it i think captivating is a perfect descriptor for this record and that's why retroactively pitchfork.com named it the best album of the 1970s. I don't know if I'd say that, really? but it's up there. Really? Yeah, they did. Wow. Yes. Good on them. Out of out of out of a hundred. Um, wow. And Eric, how do you feel about the best album of the 1970s according to Pitchfork? And I don't mean your opinion. We'll get to that later. When did you first stumble upon it? Right. Um, well. So glad we're doing this remotely, so you can't punch me. Um, or or but uh, I. I didn't know it at the time, but I did hear Subterraneans live at the Nine Inch Nails Bowie show. Joe is pointing to himself as well. He was at that one as well. Different states. I was in Arizona. Um, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I thought it was a really cool instrumental music and Trent was playing the saxophone. And then I found out when I got the bootleg later on that, oh, indeed, that was that was a Bowie song. Um, and then when I was working in the record store, like you guys, I, I was starting to, to get my Bowie collection. Um, and one Christmas, my cousin, Ryan, great guy. He 
listens to the show sometimes. So shout out to him if he's listening. He got me the one of those 33 and a third books. Remember those books that would kind of break down an album, a classic album, and it was the low one. And I hadn't bought it yet. So I was like, perfect time. I, I bought the album, had the book, and I could kind of reference it as I listened. And um, I just kind of all fell into place. It's it, it just, just, just impressed. Never, never a skippable moment on this album. So great. My, my, my story is similar. I think to anybody, well, anybody in our age group that worked at a record store or whatever, it was into these kind of music. Um, I did buy it out of obligation in what Mark calls the gotta catch them all uh, phase. I didn't really dig into it though. I think I got, I bought it and just left it there. Probably listened to it once. It was during the, um, a couple years later in the early aughts, uh, Oh one or two at that Moby tour that we've talked about where he came out in, uh, he either opened with or did an encore, uh, of a new career in a new town. And I was just like, I was with Mark that night. And I just like sat up. I was like, oh, my God, this song, this this is off low. This is one of the songs off low. That's right. Holy Christ. This is one of the best songs I've ever heard. And then at that point, I went back and just really dove into that record and dissected it more. And since then, it's been an album that I quite enjoy. And uh, the the version of the album I owned was one I bought used a dimple. And it was a Ryko disc edition. And Joe, you're familiar with Ryko disc re-releases, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, vaguely. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I found out about them after I'd had so many of those discs, and I noticed that I saw, you know, hey, what's up with all these like awesome albums being being released on CD? And then I, you know, I read a, I read up on it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. They were almost like a, I guess something like a Criterion collection of records. You know, in the early '80s when the new technology happened, like, uh, you know. With that, it would be like Laserdisc, but with this, it was the rise of CD, and so they are kind of dedicated to like um, collecting uh, important and avant-garde albums uh, and remastering and releasing them on the then new compact disc format, which was you know a very high quality uh, clarity of sound at a low cost to produce. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, a stronger economy then record sales were up, you know, and, uh, so it was, it was, a, it was a really cool idea, um, uh, to, to get, you know, to build, um, I guess like an archival kind of, uh, collection of important records. Um, I don't know that they're, uh, you know, how history is going to, to treat them, you know, at this point, since, the album seems to have kind of died as a musical format. Uh, but I mean, they were, you know, doing stuff, even when I didn't realize it, I was subconsciously picking up on it because so many uh, important records, you know, when you look back in your collection, when you look back on your collect them all phase, right? You, we all probably have at least a couple dozen of these Ryko discs, uh, whether intentionally or not. Right. So <laughs> yeah, definitely for David Bowie. When I, when I think of my David Bowie collection, the physical collection, it was full of Ryko disc editions. And I just love saying Ryko. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they always had the great bonus tracks, yes, which we'll get to. They did. All right, Eric, I'm going to let's I'm going to say let's take a, a three minute break. 
Three minute break, then, uh, bathroom break, and then uh, let's listen to that first track. Yeah, we'll pass the mic back to you. I'll let you steer us through the rest of the show. All right. Good life. All right. with speed of life and if you're looking at this like a record um the side one bookends with two instrumentals um and then you know side then side two is mostly instrumentals um that you don't really i mean like steve was saying some critics maybe no took notice of that but you don't really notice it the, the album flows and um it's kind of fun that it opens with this uh fast-paced uh instrumental track kind of kicks in with this uh you notice the drums right off the bat. They I, now maybe not so eyebrow raising, but you could see at the time the drums were being mic'd through a harmonizer, and um, it gave them a. It was basically like auto tuning your drums as soon as you hit them, so it, it gave a synthesizer quality to live drums. And Bowie want really like he'll be the first to say he's not crazy about uh, programmed drums, although as we'll hear an earthling at some point he'll, he'll, he'll relinquish that. He changed his tune. He did. He did. But at the time he said, you know, I love craft work, but their drumming is very mathematical and rigid. It's all programmed. And, um, you know, I wanted to give a similar effect, but with the emotions of a live drummer and Dennis Davies, you know, is, you know, quite an emotive drummer. So, um, you hear that right off the bat and then you hear a guitar lick that, um, I do find the guitar lick reminiscent of some Neil, like Neil Young, type seventies guitar, but it doesn't sound like that anymore in this song. It sounds some like some futuristic otherworldly thing going on. Um, and like a few other songs on this, this has some like UFO landing sounds, like some, uh, some going on out of it. Uh, definitely a way for Bowie to say, this is what I sound like now. This is new territory. Buckle up. Um, great little opening. That's my two cents. Joe, how do you feel about the opening track in this record? It's a, uh, it's real good. Um, uh, it, it, it really kind of kicks off like, like the, I feel like it's almost like it sets the mood, right? It's an instrumental on an album that has several instrumentals, which is a, you know, again, it's not necessarily something you notice because it has, you know, it, it has such a, it has an upbeat, you know, it's a propulsive, it's a poppy song. And it doesn't sound like some kind of like moody, you know, 
uh, atmospheric kind of, you know, instrumental song. It has like a driving, you know, it's kind of a pop tune, you know, just without, without choruses. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it basically, uh, it kind of sets the tone for the entire first half of the album. Um, uh, it has that propulsive, that kraut rock beat, you know, like kind of like Eric was talking about, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware that it was, uh, a harmonizer, but as soon as he described it, in that context, it made a lot of sense. Uh, it, 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 it kind of softens and uh, evens them out. You know, it doesn't have the loud crashing, you know, sound that you associate with rock and roll drums. And, um, you know, for such a rhythmic uh, uh, album uh, that goes very fast and very slow, uh, it's a very even uh, kind of tempoed song. Tony Visconti credits the harmonizer with the whole pastiche of this album. Like mm. it was his big toy. He loved the harmonizer. He he's quoted as saying it fucks with the fabric of time. Um, that's not how he talks. It fucks with the fabric of time. <laughs> but yeah, that's, but he's, he's, he's on record as saying that. Yeah. Those drums. I mean, definitely I've grown to really appreciate Dennis Davies as we've gone through these records. I, when the podcast is said and done, I'll probably end up saying he's in my like top five drummers. I just, I think he's great. And on this album, he does a lot of uh, he quietly does a lot of cool stuff. But this album isn't about the drumming. But the fact that he's able to work within those constraints that they put on to him uh, of the the live synthesized drumming, but it still has that emotion is a uh, great. And yeah, I think this this album, the, this song definitely has like you can. Once you're looking for it, and you know, it exists. You can definitely tell these drums, something's being done to them but they're also still being hit by a live human being. And uh, yeah, I, I think they have a great effect. Um, this track, according to Pushing Ahead the Dame, which is a website, Joe, that's a blog that's probably the most comprehensive Bowie blog out there. We reference it a lot. And uh, they, they, they say that this track actually was supposed to have lyrics and they just decided that the lyrics weren't, weren't fitting, so they kept it instrumental. And uh, I'm glad they did. I think it's a it's a great opener. Like you guys said, it kind of tells you the direction this album might be going in. But I think it's good that it's a it's an upbeat track that's also an instrumental, and it kind of has the two types of songs you're going to get on this record. You're going to get a lot of instrumentals, and this does kind of sound like some of the attempts that uh, you know normal songs you get on this record. If you threw some lyrics right. on this track, it would sound it would it would be perfect next to a uh, sound and vision or something, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, I love that. I, I, I just, uh, it, I, I, my, the, the, what stands out on this track to me is definitely the drumming overall. Uh, just Davey's really just pounding the skins that, and towards the end, he just really like lays into them just the bop, 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 bop. They kind of go along with that, uh, with that synth. It's, it's, it's great. Um, I think it's a great way to open up the record. And yeah. uh, Mark, what do you feel about Speed of Life? Yeah. Mark's usually a, a, quite a loose cannon when it comes to instrumentals. I never know where he's going to land. What do you think? This is a good one. Uh, kind of what Joe was saying, this acts as an overture uh, to the whole record as a well. um, whole. It, it sounds reminiscent of like a 50s doo-wop song done by Space Aliens. Yeah, no, I, I do like though, Mark, that you brought up the uh, the space alien thing again, because that's a it's a motif on this record, man. There's a lot of sounds that sound like they're coming from Mars. 
So, Eric, without further ado, should we begin breaking glass? Breaking glass. Okay, so this song is, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty cool, the music in itself, just like the last one, you could see it kind of sliding off station to station, being a, like a dancey, a dancey, uh, you know, kind of funky song, but it's just covered in synths. The drums are being jacked through that harmonizer again. Um, but, um, you know, mostly what I find fascinating about this song, and I, and I really do like this song, is, is the lyrics of this song. This is one of his darkest songs on the album. I mean, I don't know. That's just my opinion. But um, he's, he's singing a song really connecting to who he was in L.A. just a year earlier. It's a lot of shame in this song. Um, it's when you're in relationship with somebody and uh, they're a decent person. Um, and, uh, and you're not, <laughs> and, uh, basically like you're acknowledging that they're good, but that does not endear them to you because you're in such a dark place. Um, he's, he's got lines like, don't look at the carpet. I drew something awful on it. And if you remember the album artwork in station to station, he's drawing the, the Aleister Crowley tree of life on the carpet. And that's a reference to that, that era, which once again, just a year earlier, when he was uh, out of his mind on drugs and really obsessed with Crowley. Um, you know, I've been breaking glass in your room again. Uh, I mean, essentially he's talking about, he's throwing a tantrum in somebody's room. He's destroying it. He's shattering things. And then he's blaming them in the end. And, uh, um, you know, he's really tapping into that, that, that really just kind of dark side of where he was in his head. Um, pretty crazy song. Uh, uh, I like it. I think it's a it, it it goes dark, but it sounds funky and fun, which is not only the theme of this of a lot of this the lyric songs on this album, but uh, I mean that kind of I mean a lot of new wave, which this album inspired, that's kind of thematically appropriate. Really sad songs that sound fun and you can dance to in a club. <laughs> that's that's anyways. That's my two. That's my that's my take on this track. Yeah, I like. Uh, I think this is a this is a good track to have. Uh, be the first track that has some vocals on it. Um, it, it definitely it, it has some. Th- this is some of that steely, uh, kind of. I I don't know. David Bowie has all these different approaches to how he attacks a song, and this one's definitely like uh, the David. The, you know the the David Bowie that's your, your ex roommate or something that you don't want to talk to anymore that called you and you're going to have to listen to him talk. I don't know how else to describe it, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that some of this, you know, the, the whole, you know, you're a beautiful person, but you got problems or uh, that line specifically. I don't know if he's talking about Angie Bowie, but this is one of the tracks on here. This and be my wife, obviously. Um, 
where I think are informed by his his uh, th- this is right when his divorce is finally being divorced. This is the end of his marriage around this time. And I think this is one of the tracks that might affect that uh, lyrically. I I really I, I like the vocal approach to this track. There's kind of a weird stuttering to it. Um, uh, there's he picks his moments where he wants to be confident on this album. This album is not a, a vocal heavy album. And when he does sing, there's not a lot of uh, wild as the wind moments, if you will. Uh, it's it's very clipped, but he does have these moments on this record where he does remind you he's a great singer. And um, like on this one, there's the, you know, the, oh, 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 the, the little flourish he does in there. Uh, he, he's flying around, you know, he's doing the, you know, flying like a butterfly, stinging like a bee thing with his his vocalizations, where a lot of times he's just singing just the bare minimum to get the point across. And occasionally you're going to get a beautiful moment of vocalization and then it's gone like that. And a lot of this record is glimpses of things. A lot of these songs, they all fade. A majority of these songs fade out and leave you wanting more. It's a really interesting approach. And this is one of them. It fades. It gets out of town. Uh, by the By the time you're in this song's groove, it's leaving you. It's a real son of a bitch like that. And it's not the only song in this record that does that. But I do enjoy it. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I agree. I think it's interesting that you guys both mentioned that, you know, it's a it's a moment of transition for him in his life. Uh, I think similarly, you know, it's a it's a major moment of transition artistically for him where, you know, he'll look back and kind of joke about previous things that he's sung about and what he's written about. And he kind of rejects it in favor of, you know, he's always ready to move on to something new. I think this song is evocative of that, both, you know, lyrically, thematically and stylistically. Uh, you mentioned like the um, like the kind of uh, the stuttering rhythm of it, the dun 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 dun, you know, like like the the, the movement of it is it's kind of got this cool, like kind of a sleazy, like bluesy kind of, uh, you know, wailing guitar thing. But it's also oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have to interject. You're yeah. totally right. This is still a great, like a lot of the songs in this album, still a great, you know, a rocking band is behind this. No matter what pace it's moving at, the guys putting these songs together are a good rock band. Yeah, he fits it together because it's like, like, you know, it's also proto new wave. It's still and it's still, you know, like you said, it's it's a it's a it's kind of a, a bluesy. It's a rock and roll song. But it's on its it's tilted, you know what I mean? It's it's a little different, and uh, I think it's um, I think it's uh, you know I generally look at these songs uh, a little bit more melodically. You know, I have a hard time hearing lyrics in songs. It takes it, it's kind of hard for me, so I kind of appreciate hearing that side of it. But I think it absolutely fits with what's happening stylistically from the musical standpoint. Uh, you know, in his transition and his evolution, uh, this album, you know, is kind of like the first of, you know, a, a trilogy of things. And it was a, it was a new a new city, a new country, um, you know, new influences informing it, um, you know, personal things in his life that he was kind of rejecting and changing and trying to recover from. Uh, and I think this song kind of uh, encapsulates, uh, you know, a very new um, but confident you know, a uh, step in a, in a different direction. And, uh, and likewise, you know, it, it's the most, so many of these songs, you know, like you said, they're, they're short, they kind of leave you wanting more, but they don't 
they also don't overstay their welcome. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really neat to see the, you know, um, uh, a, such a different kind of song that still fits in completely well with like his pop sensibility and yet sounds very, very different than, than, you know, kind of where he's coming from without, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe, but I, I, I'm a big fan. I love it. Yeah. And it, it definitely, it has, it's, it definitely has a sense of that weird Bowie breaking glass. Mm-hmm. If you're going to put Bowie songs into different buckets, breaking glass is definitely weird. Bowie it's has an odd pace, the lyrical structures, this guy calling up somebody and being like, listen, honey, I've been breaking glass in your room again. I mean, that's, that's odd. <laughs> and then, and then if you do, if you really want to, um, the, 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 the harmonizing drums, the harmonizer is the harmonizer, right, Eric? That's what it's called. You got it. Yeah. If you really want a good example for it on this, it is that drum beat. We're all talking about that. Dun, dun, da dun, dun, that you, you can clearly hear that, that harmonizing effect. And uh, Tony Visconti, I mean, he loved Dennis Davies drumming. He said that like the drumming that, that Davies was doing made the stuff on Ziggy Stardust sound like it was uh, done on a paper drum, which I can, I can, I can hear Visconti saying that, but I also want to hear what Mark Branstead has to say about breaking glass. Mark, what'd you think? Solid track. Love the sleazy guitar. Love the funky bass. I love whoever's playing the modem. Everything seems to work. <laughs> Great song. You guys nailed it. Kind of like the first time we get to hear that screeching uh, synthesizer that, that becomes a good friend of ours throughout the album, huh? Yeah, I believe so. And uh, I know I'm being slightly snarky when I say the modem, but that's what it reminds me of. And I'm okay with that. I think it's great. Well, I got while I got Mark on the hook here, uh, speaking of his description of the modem, he also is the one that described the next track perfectly to me recently, which is uh, What in the World? And here's a clip from that. And Mark, what in the world is going on with what in the world? You're just a little girl with gray eyes. Never mind, say something. Wait until the crowd cries. Oh, wait until the crowd cries. You're just a little girl with gray eyes. Someone dropped a quarter into the Pac-Man machine is what happened. <laughs> it's uh you got some lips like sounds that are absolutely comparable to what you hear in those early arcade games and i'm sure you guys would probably agree with that um this is one of the songs that uh, there's a lot going on um it's not one of my favorite ones off the record it is a good one but uh it, it takes me by surprise because of all the things going on uh, but I'd like to hear a little bit more from Joe because that video game, I don't know if he noticed that as well, as our resident video game genius. What do you have to say about it? Yeah, I'm actually a huge fan of this, and I always immediately recognized it uh, as, a, as a Pac-Man sound alike. Uh, you know, to learn that it, that it came out fully three years before Pac-Man, uh, you know, is, is, you know, one more, just, it shouldn't be surprising to us how ahead of the times Bowie was. Um, this is an interesting track to me because again, it's, uh, you know, for early, you know, synthesizer music and pop, you know, in, in the sixties and seventies, 
the big um, the big push with synthesized music, right, was the recreation, uh, you know, of electronic like real life, you know, musical instruments. And this song is very unique in that it completely rejects that and it allows the synthesizer to sound like a synthesizer and it's not trying to emulate real instruments. So it sounds very futuristic uh, and kind of anti-melodic. And yet within the context of the entire song, it's this like really cool and alien and just it's a fun sound. It's before. I mean, I guess at this point we had Pong. And, and that's about it. You know, what we, what we think of as video game music hadn't become a thing. This was a year before space invaders, which only had like one note, you know? Um, and this thing was, was fully making video game noises before there were video game noises. Um, it's a, it's a very unique quality and it's a very bouncy, uh, bouncy, you know, backing track, which is somehow through David Bowie's, uh, magical voice, he counterbalances with his with his uh, kind of fluid and understated, um, soft, you know, melodic voice, you know. Um, so it's this it's this like these these counter songs that are bouncing off each other. And again, I think a lot of that is is, is you know the uh, the, uh, the influence of like you know Kraftwerk. Um, early Kraftwerk had a lot of droney songs in it, but they would coalesce into these like kind of frenetic and very sharp and bouncy songs, you know, uh, Connie Plank's production of that band, um, had to have been a big influence on the sound of some of these more, uh, upbeat and just, uh, very upfront, uh, synthesized songs where they weren't trying to sound like Wendy Carlos. They weren't trying to sound like, well, I may be jumping ahead a little, but like Tangerine Dream was doing, you know, in 77, they were scoring their first movies and the second half of the album sounds like them, but this is very different in it's, uh, in it's very, um, a front facing, uh, very much not trying to hide, not trying to, um, uh, you know, it's, it's like adding to a, a, a you know, a cacophony of, of, of sounds and it's, uh, it's kind of joyous. I think. I was thinking, um, the same thing when I was listening to it, that I, the a lot of not 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 the electronic bands, but like the rock bands. I'm thinking like the big like prog bands or whatever that were using synths. They were using them like like epic horns and epic strings that were that were kind of like building up the choruses of the songs. And in this, they're not meant they're not meant for that. They 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 are they are just layers of of uh, plinks and 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 fizzles over over an already great track um the this his i love his vocals in this song he is actually really especially the whole like yearning deep inside of me that whole part he's just he's just he's just ripping um this song this song is quite sad it is you know when you're isolated when you're isolating yourself and you're stuck in a room um you're, and you're talking to yourself and all you've got left is yourself. Um, and when you're Bowie and you've always had a persona and you've kind of got that moment where you got lost in a persona for a long time and you're just like, uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're basically having to face your, your, your real self and your real self is quite sad. It's, it's, it's a moment. Um, I'm a little afraid of you. 
because love won't make you cry, but wait until the crowd goes. I'm just a little bit afraid of you. So when the crowd leaves, what's left? Himself. Um, uh, what are you going to be to the real me? Um, it's just a, it's a very reflective song for Bowie. Um, he's been in a persona almost, you know, the, his whole career up until now. And this is, this is very, it's a very raw, fleshy song for Bowie. Um, and I love his, yeah, I, I think he's, he's doing some beautiful delivery of the song. Something deep inside of me, yearning deep inside of me is talking through the gloom. What in the world can I do? What in the world can I do? I'm in the mood for your love. For your love. For your love. For your love. What you gonna say? Okay, Steven had nothing to say on this one, or he had an emergency. Sounds like it. Um, one of the things that I would point out is that Iggy Pop, uh, his backing vocals are uh, quite prominent, and looking at the research, it looks like this one should have been slated for The Idiot, and I could absolutely see this one fitting on The Idiot. Um, but... I think it has a little more spit and polish uh, on the record. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Figured I'd throw that in there while Steve... No, I was going to say that as well. I like Iggy Pop's presence on the song. Um, you just hear like his low register pop in on certain lines, and it's perfect. It's a, it's a great little background. Um, I think it fits... I think you're right. I think it's better on this album. Uh, and the bottom line is this. Iggy Pop does not have the range of Bowie, and Bowie is is wailing uh, on certain parts that works because of how sad this song is. And um, I just don't know if 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 Iggy could have pulled it off, like especially that whole uh, something deep inside of me part. I don't know. I don't know if he could if he could sing for the Raptors in that way. Um, so I do like it, and and plus, if you look at the lyrical content of this song, the last or or the the breaking glass to this to sound and vision. Thematically, it is just like a glove. So interesting you say that. I think the uh, uh, lyrically, not as much maybe, but I think that there's a, the, the next section of the album we're getting into. I think the next section of the songs all fit together quite well, but interesting there. Um, yeah, as far as this song goes, I it's it's good. It's probably my second to least favorite song of the album. That still means that it's a great song. There's no bad music on this record. Um, there's one questionable instrumental song at the end I'll talk about, but there's nothing bad on this album. This song just doesn't... Uh, the frenetic pace. I, I need to be in the mood for this frenetic pace. And I think this song definitely is a harbinger, though, of Lodger. I could see this being on Lodger. Like, a, you know, this this sounds like a, a rough draft for one of these days or something to me. Um. But it's a, it's it's an alright track, it's uh, it's good, but I I have no opinions on it that you guys haven't covered in depth already. Thanks for chiming in. Uh, sound and vision. Sound, and vision. 
So by by the time this track rolls around, I'm already into the groove of this record. But every time I listen to this album from start to finish, when sound and vision starts, I get goosebumps every time when it starts. Those opening drum beats, they give me every time. Every time I listen to it, I always, I mean, okay, I'm not testing myself for goosebumps, but close enough. Every time the song starts, it just takes me to another level of existence. I get just a little bit better, no matter what I'm doing. If I'm cleaning a toilet, if I'm responding to an email at work, if my son woke up at, uh, what time is it right now, guys? 11, wow. If my son woke up at 11 and just started saying, hey, dad, come uh, <laughs> come get me like he did while you guys were talking about the last track. When Sound and Vision plays, I get put into just a little bit better of a place no matter what's going on in my life. I adore this song very, very much. And uh, I, I, I'm very curious what our guest of honor has to say about it because I'm sure he has a, a lot to say. Yeah, uh, this song is a, this is a really special David Bowie song. Um, I think it's... Uh, it, what, what makes it so unique in the context of the whole album is that it seems almost, well, I mean, it's it's arguably the funkiest song on here, but it also seems like the most uh, traditional almost of a David Bowie song in light of the unusual directions that this album takes. This is like a pure Bowie pop song and uh, it would fit in on any album. And I think we're just kind of lucky that it adds to the greatness of this one. Um, that's not to like diminish it as just another great David Bowie hit, you know, moving on, but it's, uh, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, you know, reinvent the wheel. I don't think in context of, of his, uh, songwriting or in the context of this album. Uh, so it's easy to overlook the impact that it has at the bottom line is just like a fantastic fucking pop song. It's just such a good, like you said, it's just, it, 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 it just, it, it brings everything together. Um, and I guess it just seems almost effortless because it doesn't rely on any, um, you know, pushing of the boundaries of, you know, uh, interesting new sounds or, or, or themes. It's just like, it's just such a great pop song. I don't know. It's hard for me to articulate, uh, what makes it great. Um, uh, but you, you can't not want to, you know, uh, shake your body to it, you know, when you hear it, it's a, it's a great song. It's beautiful. Uh, what's cool about this song is though you are right. I could see this popping up on a lot of albums and it just would make sense because it's a great pop song. There are some specific things that make it a low song. Um, this was the first song they recorded where, or, or, or wrote that mm -hmm. Bowie knew for sure Eno was going to be involved. So, um, like a lot of the songs they maybe he already had, and then Eno just added some flourishes over it. But this one, it was written for Eno to collaborate. Uh, Eno was the one that suggested he go like almost halfway through the song before even singing. Cause like that, which is crazy. It's totally unconventional. You're right. It's a pop song, but how many pop songs, do you know, that go half a tra half a song before the vocals come in. Um, once again, you don't notice it though. And it is a, it is they, he does that and it's still a perfect pop song. I never noticed the lyrics. I'm yeah. like, the, yeah. that's the last yeah. thing I, I, I think about in any song ever. A fun fact, the do, 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 do. That's Mary Visconti, Tony's wife at the time, or maybe still. Yeah. So she's the one doing that part. Um, 
I didn't know I couldn't didn't know it wasn't Bowie until I listened to some of the remixes that we'll talk about later, where it's very clear that it's a that's definitely a female singing that part. Um, the uh, yeah, the, so the beginning's all instrumental, and it, then it, then when he starts singing, blue blue electric blue, that's the color of my room where I live. Blinds or pale blinds drawn all day, nothing to do, nothing to say. Um, he's talking about kind of his life in LA during that, that, that dark year, um, where, you know, when you feel that depression and you, and you close yourself in, suddenly it's harder to find your muse. And that's like, you know, you know, what, what essentially like, do you ever wonder about sound and vision? He can't get that, 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 that inspiration. And that's, and that's really that the song is about that frustration. You couldn't tell that because it sounds fun as hell, but that's what it's about. It's about how like, uh, you know, depression and, and isolation can suck your inspiration to create. And uh, that's that. There are some cool synth flourishes, and I didn't realize it until I had headphones on, but at every third beat, you hear a hissing sound that sounds like an iron touching down on a on a shirt or something like that. And it's every, if you count like a four, four time, one, two, it's always hits on the third beat, which is interesting. And it's throughout the entire song. Which is a which is a fun little touch. Well, that's, so um, that's pretty cool. I'll have, to, not, I'll have to listen for that. Yeah, this is a top notch track. Oh, there's so this is yeah. It could one of Bowie's top five, in my opinion. No questions asked. That's not a yeah. That's a that's a that's a fair assessment. And yeah, the, the shimmering sense. There's uh, uh, I'm glad you brought those up because they're definitely a highlight of this track. You're already into this song. Each of the band members is doing their thing and they're doing it well. And then those synth those synths come in. It just takes it to another level. Um, I think that the production on this track is perfect. Everything is crystal clear. Uh, you can hear da- Davies again is doing these little drum fills. It, uh, just, 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 he's just doing these little drum fills in between uh, the, the, what is resembling of a chorus and a verse here that just, if you're not paying attention, you won't notice that he's changing things up, but he's doing such a great, great, great work on it. And just, it's just a, a magic song where everything comes together perfectly. There's like a whole goddamn world of music in this one track. And David Bowie's delivery on it is pitch perfect. He has, he does that, you know, the very collected, the David Bowie, you talking, you know, the sometime in sound and vision. And they, they do these overlays of the sound and vision. But then when he's, singing about the blue, blue, electric blue. It's kind of the manic David Bowie. You get a diff- a couple different of Bowie deliveries in this track that just l- lends it to being many different David Bowie songs in one song. And I'm very glad they brought it back for the, the heathen and reality tours. So uh, I was able to see it live. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm glad to add that to my memory bank. And like I said earlier, and there's a reason that there's a there's a huge box set released in the 90s by Ryko Disc that was called Sound and Vision. I think that they that that phrase is a definite perfect descriptor of David Bowie in general. And this song, you know, I will sit right down and wait for the gift of Sound and Vision is a mission statement. I think it's it's fantastic. Well, he's, you can't separate the vision from the sound with Bowie either. Even when you're listening to just the album, you can't help but picture him because it's always been part of the package. Yes. And I, but also just the, the way he delivers, I will sit right down and wait for the gift of sound and vision. He's saying it's a gift. You know, you get, you not, 
don't take it for granted. It's a uh, pretty simply profound. Mark Branstad, how do you feel about the sound and vision? I feel that the Cure owe their entire musical career to the template that Bowie provided them. On this that's song. wow. That's a that's spot on, man. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a little bit of upbeat. You've got those synth, long, you know, stabs. Uh, but this song is is, uh, is solid gold. Um, it does give me some Christmas vibes for whatever reason. I don't know why. Uh, it just does. It could be the Carlos Alomar kind of guitar playing. What also I really like about this song is the anticipation that it builds. Like, I feel that uh, it's usually you're about a minute and a half in before Bowie even makes a sound. You know, it really gives that anticipation. Uh, I believe, looking through the research, that uh, Brian Eno did that on purpose. He really wanted to prolong Bowie's introduction in there. And uh, potentially, this could have been a great album opener, um, but I understand where it's perfectly placed but it's a solid song i mean it's a great excellently excellently constructed pop song as joe was saying um it's a classic for a reason well i think i think when you bring up the anticipation of the lyrics coming in i think it's placed about a little bit prematurely almost to the midpoint of the album and it's i don't know lack of better term meta to have this song that once you know it exists, you anticipate it being on this record. And yeah, I think it was a, a good move to have this. The, the great, I mean, I don't know. They probably, when they, when they recorded this track, they probably, they, they had to know this was gold. And so putting it right here, they're, they, they, they picked the perfect spot for it. I think. It's a good one. So let's go to the next track which happens to be always crashing in the same was a little bit of always crashing in the same car and I really want to hear what our guest has to say about this track but I will say before I pass the 
microphone to him. If I were to have a most improved player award for any of the uh, the albums or records we've looked at, this track was one that I never really gave much thought to, and now it's in my upper escalon. Uh, but Joe, how do you feel about it? Uh, I'm refreshing myself right now on it. Hold on. I'll uh, I'll take the lead here for a second. I'll pass it back to Joe. Um, there is a funny story. Well, I don't know how funny it is. There is uh, conflicting rumors about the base of the song. I mean, Bowie has said that this is a real life incident um, that happened in his LA de- in his LA days uh, during his, the the depths of his addiction, where he was in a hotel uh, parking lot, and you know, one of those that has a spiral driveway that you get up to every level, and he just kept going round and around for hours over and over again. He couldn't figure out how to get out. And um, the person in the song that he sings about, um, he uses a name, uh, Jasmine, uh, was whoever was in the car with him and and, and was just terrified the entire time. Um, and obviously it's a metaphor for making the same mistakes over and over again, um, which I, you know, I think makes sense in this reflective stage in his life when he's thinking about about the last few years and what he did. Um, there is also a little story about <laughs> a time where he, and, and this is not verified. So I don't know if it's true, but people have that know him have said that this song is about a time where he drove down the street and he passed a guy on the street and he's like, that's, that's a drug dealer. He, he uh, took my money and didn't give me like, he basically is blaming this guy for stealing his money and not giving him any product. And so he like sped around, like flipped a U-turn and then crashed while he was trying to chase this guy down, which I cannot imagine Bowie doing, but I think it's a great story. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, uh, oh yeah. And Jasmine might be Iggy pop. And that would make sense. Them Iggy sitting in the car terrified as Bowie can't get out of a parking structure. Um, one little, also uh, another, this, this song has the most fascinating stories out of all of them on this album. Uh, another, apparently when they first recorded it, <laughs> Mark, you'll like this. Uh, Bowie did the whole thing in a Bob Dylan voice, a fake Bob Dylan voice. <laughs> Just, ah! the, whole, <laughs> the whole time. And, uh, and, and Visconti was like, uh, that doesn't fit, but it's funny. <laughs> so, well, you know, um, you know why that, uh, you know, why he might've been doing that was because David Bo or, uh, Bob Dylan crashed his motorcycle a few years back. Yeah. It was probably some topical humor about that. I could see that. Yeah. That's uh they actually, there actually is a line in here that, uh, it's kind of on the nose about that. Um, oh, drat. Edit, edit this bit out. Here, we'll, uh, uh, uh... Oh, no, you were just right. Yeah, the, the, the third verse he's saying, uh, like Bob Dylan, but they cleaned it up. But yeah, that that came from the fact that Bob Dylan had a motorcycle accident. Then he, you know, went into hiding for a few years. So, 
I do notice the music sounds a little Motown-ish, like mm. um, a little like, uh, I don't know. It even calls back to these those classic car crash, motorcycle crash songs yeah. like Leader of the Pack. Like doo yeah. Yeah, doo-wop um, but it works because, but then it's all drowned in the cool Eno stuff and um, it's a whole new thing. Yeah. And speaking uh, of the Eno, I mean, this, this song has a lot of wild Eno stuff going on. Um, and funny enough, one of the organs used on this track used to be one of Sid Barrett's organs from Pink Floyd. And uh, somehow Brian, Brian, Eno got his hands on it. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of a, uh, there's this song. The best way I can describe this track when listening to it closely is it is one of the songs that best represents what it's like to be uh, on acid uh, it, from the very start. There's this sound of Martian spaceships landing and then elevating again. And it just it's a weird sound effect in the first place. And then the sound kind of degrades and has a warbledness to it. That just kind of makes you feel if you focus on that on that synth line that's going on, you will start to feel a little weird in the head. Uh, do, you, do you guys know the sound, the sound I'm referring to on this track? Oh, yeah. I, I definitely do. Uh, yeah. I'm ready to chime in now. Uh, you know, it's is one of the, this song is a weird one for me. Um, it's not my favorite, but it's still an amazing song. Uh, what's, I had to reacquaint myself with it. Cause this song does like weird things to me. It's interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the LSD type, uh, uh sensation, uh, because this song, you know, it, it, it loses me only because of like the weirdness of the beginning of it that I kind of get, like my mind gets tra- trails off thinking about that when the song actually kicks in, I'm still thinking about the other thing. So like, I literally kind of have to like throw the brakes and I had to like literally like listen to him. Like I had to hear like the first, like, you know, full minute of it before like, okay, I know where it's going now. And I recognize the song. Cause I always, it's hard for me to like put it in context. Like when I hear the title, I think of like three different things. So I have to, it, I, I really, it's like the least familiar song to me, even though it's like, I hear it a million times. It's hard for me to keep up with it uh, because it's doing so many different things. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's very telling whether it was an intentional or not. I think that's a pretty good analogy, Steve, uh, because, uh, it doesn't fit into any pegs. You know what I mean? Like it has, it has these, these, these different elements of it, you know, and, uh, it's such a neat song. It it almost, it couldn't really properly belong on any album. And so therefore I think it kind of does belong here just by virtue of its, uh, it's weird qualities. It's not, it, it, it doesn't settle. It never settles into itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, definitely that. And, and yeah, it, it needs, if, if it's not on it, low, right? it's where else is it going to be? You're right. Yeah. That's, and that's part of the magic. Cause it still is like, it's a masterful song and it's so good, but it's so hard to describe what makes it good. Um, and it does confusing things to me <laughs> whenever I listen to it, it, uh, it, it like, I really have to like, I have to listen to this song like twice or else like I either get stuck thinking about the first like 30 seconds of it for the duration of the song. And then I have to start it over again to properly hear it. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't so, even, you know, that, that it's a confusing song. I don't know if that's a strength, if that's a, if that's a strength of it or a knock on it. I think it's a strength. It is a strength. But it does weird things the way that I hear it's a strength. the song, it's a strength. the way, the way that I hear songs again, where, where it's melody, in, 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 in tone first and then lyrics last. Right. Um, 
it's uh it's a it's a doozy nobody gets stuck on like the first 30 seconds of a 21 pilot song you know that <laughs> right yeah. so that's that separates the good from the, the yeah the, the mediocre you know yeah. back back to the the idea of the sound of acid i wasn't even thinking about it but that is definitely what i zeroed in on when i started focusing doing my homework on this record and then learning tonight that brian eno got his synth for this song from sid barrett who famously lost his mind partially to acid use is uh very interesting it landed on this track um let me just give you a little synergy there um according to pushing ahead the dame bowie actually listened to sid barrett's no good trying a solo track by sid barrett um with lyrics like you're spinning around and around in a car with electric lights flashing very fast he 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 used that song um, to inspire his vocal cues in this. Uh, hey, Mark, are you familiar with that track on your recent run through on Floyd? Which one? The Sid Barrett's "No Good Trying." Um, yes, I've listened to both Sid Barrett records. Um, I think that might have been on the one that's a little bit more uh, put together. Um, Madcap Laughs is really. Uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty esoteric acoustic Sid Barrett alone. Um, but the second one, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I from my understanding, there was Golden Hair that, uh, or I don't know, that was uh, I'm not making any sense. That was the one that was a little more referenced on this one. This this song was on, or, or that song, that Sid Barrett song was on the Madcap Laughs. Yeah, exactly. His first one. He only really released two studio albums, Madcap Laughs and Barrett. Opal is kind of a collection of other stuff, but um, yes. I can't really see the connection between this song and any of Sid Barrett's work, because I'm actually a big fan of this song. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, a couple a couple other things going on in this song. I just want to make sure we bring up is uh, I do really like the subdued hush kind of production to Bowie's vocals on these. the uh, The line about speeding around in the garage. Uh, most of the verses kind of have this. He's kind of like reflecting and being wistful as he sings, and it's a really interesting tone for him to use. And it's kind of fuzzy at the same time. Go back and listen to it. And it kind of has like a hushed fuzziness to it, his delivery of the uh, the verses. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the one of the most uplifting parts of the record, uh, as far as earworms go, is the the yeah 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 he belts out at one point. I I think that that's a that's a really good vocalization there. And again, the Davies is just doing enough little flourishes to uh, I, I don't know man he really he puts the meat on the bones of some of these songs and he he even has like some John Bonham pounding on the, on this track if you listen for it after that line uh, where David Bowie talks about driving a car round and round there's a there's a couple of drum just like pats that really that really do it for me really good fills right there so it's uh, it says it's, uh, he's, he's quickly becoming one of my fav- favorite drummers good good track and i don't know if you guys noticed but a lot of these songs that we discussed they fade away like someone's turning them down but the song is still going this song actually stops it, it ends there's no fade out 
Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, the next song, uh, I think I we played play this at some point during our wedding, and if I had any idea what it was about, I probably wouldn't have, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a fun song, and nobody knew. E My Wife. Nobody, there will be no Borat jokes allowed tonight. <laughs> Joe is leaning in, ready for his impression. Uh, so, this song, um, I mean, the song's great. Uh, when it starts, it's a little jarring. He's got a ragtime piano intro to this song. It, 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 it is, it is, Eric, but also at the same time, ragtime pianos are on many previous records, but we weren't. Oh, yeah. And I think, isn't it nice to just have a little reminder? Oh, yeah, we haven't forgotten. We love that ragtime piano, you know? Oh, no, I, no, totally. Yeah. And when he played that, I was really thinking about like two tracks I mean, it's, off of, um, it's, off of uh, Station to Station. TVC where, 15 is one of them, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then as soon as the last, the last chord hits, the synths kind of come in, and then it sounds like this is the old, this is the new. And it's just like a, it's just a moment of, of, of yeah, baton. It, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a baton handoff. And that ragtime piano will be crucial to what makes this song so good. Um, it's a dancey fast paced, uh, little track. Um, and it moves, it moves at a clip. Um, but yeah, when it gets to finally gets to that chorus, uh, sometimes you get so lonely, and the, the, the piano just dun, dun, dun. They're like, just, it sounds like somebody's just punching the shit out of their grand piano. It is beautiful. I love that part. It gives it so much oomph. Um, uh, the, the song itself, um, baseline is, is just pushing nonstop. It's just driving this thing like a train. Um, and the drums are, the drum fills like almost never stop. It's great. Um, the lyrics in the song, I mean, it, in a way it's the most heartbreaking thing on here. I mean, his marriage was ending. Um, and it's like, he's basically, you know, sometimes you get so, so lonely. Sometimes you get nowhere. I lived all over the world. I lived every place. We just keep going. Shall we? It's basically like, well, we're both going to be alone. Let's just be alone together. Why, why, why break up? Be my wife. Let's stay together. Even if we're both alone, you know, the whole time, it's just the, the idea of being in a union, but being alone. Um, it's terribly sad. 
terribly sad. Um, and it's, it's definitely hard on his sleeve more than he usually does because it's usually shrouded by metaphor. Um, this one's pretty, pretty out there. Uh, pretty, yeah, he's, he's putting it all out there. Um, so, I mean, some people look at it a different way. Like it's a, it's a legitimate plea that Angie Bowie stay with him. I don't, I don't see that at all. He's, he's resigning himself to the reality of if that marriage goes on, it's two people that are being alone together. Um, anyways, it's an incredible track. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I I really appreciate that analysis of the lyrics, uh, Eric, and uh, you know anything else you guys can add. Um, I feel this song uh, uh, has a similarly um, a kind of a, a, a sad. I mean, it's a poppy song, but it's a it, you can it, it feels like a sad song, um, and it's uh, again I love that piano uh, so so very much. Um, in most of the David Bowie songs that my favorites have, you know, feature the piano. Um, and, uh, it's, um, <clears throat> this song is a, a total earworm for me. Um, uh, I never really, I mean, I listen to the lyrics, uh, you know, more so than just about any other song on this album. Um, but yeah, I guess you're right. That is, uh, it is kind of a, it's one of those songs where it's like, you can tell that, I mean, I didn't, I don't know anything about like what was going on in his life at the time that his, this album was made, was, was made, but it always did kind of feel like, um, uh, you know, it had, it had different meaning, you know, multiple meanings perhaps. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a great, it's a great track. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't have as much to add to it, (laughs) but it's a, it's a winner. Those punchy pianos are yeah. all time, all time. Yeah, yeah, and it is pretty sad, like you guys have said. It just sounds very resigned. Um, I mean, the last line on the song is he sings that sometimes you get so lonely one last time. He doesn't even continue it. Almost just like you know, like it. Is, somebody just saying like it is what it is. You know, uh, one part on it that really has like an uptick to it that I I. I want to point out is the during the please be mine Davies kicks the the song into like a danceable drum beat for a second. Um, and, and as soon as you notice that he's doing that, he stops as he want is want to do in this record. Uh, also, um, I, I keep forgetting his name, a uh, gardener gardener does some, uh, guitar work on this song. Some, some that I can only describe is proto frip. There's some noodling on this track that's kind of a harbinger of what's going to come on uh, Heroes. There's a little bit mm-hmm. of a frippage going on. And uh, the, uh, the the another aspect of this track I really do dig is that the overdubs of the sometimes you get so lonely towards the end of the track, they layer more uh, Bowie vocalizations on each other. So it has more of a oomph. It's, uh, I think the song would have been really at home on Scary Monsters myself. Like I, I could, I could see it there. I could see that. I could see. Yeah, that between sure. kind of the mishmash of the, 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 the piano, uh, plus the the frippage guitar, and um, the lyrical content. Even I think I think Scary Monster still had some songs about Angie Bowie, and I can't remember right now. Oh yeah, he had no, yeah for sure. The uh, Up the Hill Backwards is a there divorce song. Perfect. So any yeah, 
Uh, Mark, how do you feel about Be My Wife? Do you have any uh, thing you like to add on about the music video? Yeah, it's just David Bowie kind of like wandering around a room with a guitar, half-ass playing it, kind of looking at the ground. It's kind of on the nose about the the, the attitude the song has. Uh, Eric or Joe, did you watch the video by any chance? Yes, and I used it as a learning opportunity with my son Lennox, who idolizes David Bowie, but Lennox has to get braces and he's freaking out. He's terrified of it. I'm terrified of it because it's $5,000, but um, (laughs) he's terrified. Hey, 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 hold on, hold on. I'm not asking you to disclose how much you make, but I mean, they're going to let you have a payment plan, right? Oh, God, yeah, the payment plan. (laughs) A little down payment, and uh, I'll be paying for those for years. Um, But... uh, uh, he doesn't, he's, he's terrified. And I'm like, look at Bowie's teeth in that video. And then look at his teeth later. He got braces in between. Look at that Lennox, just like you will. And he was like, Oh, okay. 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 If he still has a problem, just pull out the big book of British smiles clip from the Simpsons. No, lost opportunity. First, we're talking about braces. Lennox needs braces. And you even said payment plan. <laughs> payment plan. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys, get together. Uh, but this is a great song. I don't really have anything else to add besides what these two gentlemen said. Uh, I love me some saloon piano, and this has it in space. What's next? What's next is a new career in a new town. And I'm going to let our guest talk about this song for probably like five minutes before the rest of us do. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, this is my favorite David Bowie song, actually. Um, which I, I don't know if, if that's a, a conventional opinion or not, but um, uh, it it's uh, it's pure joy. Uh, it says so much musically, and with just its title, uh, that it doesn't even need the lyrics. You know what I mean? It, it's it's an instrumental song. It speaks to me uh, on many levels. I think like we were talking about the history of this, you know, he was getting away, you know, from uh, what he what he didn't love in his life. Right. To make this record, he went to a new place, a new country, a new town. He he, he left his his uh, crumbling relationship and he, uh, you know, decided to work with new collaborators, um, you know, 
and uh, made what I think is like a singularly uh, uh, astounding yet imperfect album. And this song is uh, astounding and uh, uh, cruelly short. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's it, it it it's it's one of those ones that uh, immediately grabs me. Uh, you know, I, when I'm if I'm spacing out. This song comes on and uh, it commands a hundred percent of my attention. It's hard for me to drive with this song on because uh, it just makes me feel all the feelings and I can't focus on other things. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, uh, something about it. It's it, it's hard to it's hard to put into words. It's pure feels uh, for me. Um, but again, you know, it's got it's got the pianos and the what is that like a harmonica? And yep. Yeah, it's a uh, harmonica line that he would use again on his final album, Black Star, on the song "I Can't Give It All Away." He'd bring that harmonica line back up. Yeah, it's uh, it it I don't know. It's uh, it's one of those songs that can that somehow follows me into every era of my adult life since discovering it, um, and. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to really uh, uh, overstate its its impact that it that it had on me. Um, uh, it, it definitely is what puts this album uh, at the top of the heap for me. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's just it's just uh, it goes against, I guess, what I would expect from what from you know what I are I already loved David Bowie when I discovered this song. And, uh, it just didn't really occur to me, um, you know, how much he could, uh, uh, put into a song that was, you know, he, with his perfect vocals, he didn't even have to use them in this song. I don't know. There's something about it. You're absolutely right. I mean, the song conveys exactly the title of the song. I mean, it just feels like a fresh start in a good way. Um, it starts with four on the floor, bass drum and synth. And then it kind of builds from there and it builds pretty quickly. You got yeah, that harmonica line. Um, you've got a walking bass line and uh, doom, you got, doom, 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 yep. doom, doom. That's a great bass line. Yeah. And you got two guitars kind of going back and forth. You got a dueling guitar situation happening. Um, and it just, it's just upbeat. It, it, it's great. And yeah, it, it, I mean, I can think of a life moment too, where I think I've mentioned on the show before, but just, just, I had a, interviewed for the job for the district that got me back to this Sacramento area where I live now. And I interviewed, I got back in my car, turned it on 3000 songs on shuffle. The next song that came up was this song. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and I hadn't moved back here yet too. So it was perfect. Um, yeah. So I mean, this song, this song is lovely. It is absolutely a joy. I, uh, that's funny, Eric. I, I don't, I don't think I mentioned this in the show before. Well, maybe I did. I'll tell it now. Before I got my job currently at the solar company I'm at, uh, I remember very specifically sitting outside in a rainy day before I went in for my interview and I put scary monsters on. I sat in the, I got there early enough to where I sat in the parking lot and listened to half of scary monsters to get myself in the right spot to, to go in for that interview. And I got the job, but uh, yeah, I think a lot David Bowie has a lot of stuff that lends itself to big life moments. And this song is definitely one of them. Uh, and like I said, uh, when I heard this for the, at that Moby tour, it, it is what made me go pull low out and really look at it again. And that, I think that was the, the when I re, I was a David Bowie fan. 
but I don't think I realize that within David Bowie, you have just a scope of uh, different artistic attacks at music like you couldn't believe. And uh, seeing the song live really made me reassess everything. And it was just such a, a great moment. It's a great, great upbeat song. It sound uh, the song, the title of the song and the sound of the song sounds like it could be a talking head song to me in the best way. I think this is a, this definitely crosses over into talking heads territory, um, which is always a good thing. And I feel that the band is really dialed in this track. I would love to see a video of the band putting this song together and just, I can imagine them like grooving and looking at each other and nodding their heads. I don't know. It moves. It just moves so effortlessly. It's a, uh, it's great. And it, it has, you know, it, again, this album has one, a lock and a, just, a, a, just a band some lockstep with each other. And Eno comes in and does some synth work that just, there's some plinking light type sounds on this track that really put a nice cherry on the top of it all. We have reached the end of side one of Low, and due to just this being such a robust conversation, we're going to call it for this episode, and we will split it in two. We'll be back next week with part two, so you can hear us go over side B of Loa. All new experience, yet fits together like a glove. Thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to hear what you think about Low on our various social medias. Um, and hey, if you want to, uh, you know, toss a couple coins our way and uh, give us a little tip for, uh, you know, putting together a little free entertainment for you, uh, check out our patreon.com slash pod like a hole. Uh, thanks again. Thanks to our special guest, Joe. He's got a lot more to say when we hit the ambient electronic side two next week. Bye.